please bow and join me as we pray. Lord, that is exactly what we came here to do today. It's exactly what we need. It's what we want. We need to see you. We need to behold you and to grasp something, some small portion of your glory, of who you are. Lord, that's why we want to open the word today. We know that it's in the scriptures that you will speak to us. You will reveal yourself to us. Lord, my, my prayer, my request this morning, our great need is that you would remove any obstacles that would keep us from seeing you. That you'd remove any obstacles that would keep us from responding to your will. We pray that you'd show yourself, show us your will. Lord, we pray that you would produce in us the change that such a vision requires. Lord, we recognize that this is a work of your spirit. It's not something that can be manufactured. It's not something we can do in our own strength. So we humbly come and ask now for your help and your blessing as your word is preached. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke once again. We'll be in Luke chapter 3 this morning. Luke chapter 3 shifts the focus back from Jesus and his birth and his early years to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is somewhat of a mysterious character. He wears weird clothes. As I said, the other gospel authors tell us he goes around dressed in camel's hair. Um, he eats weird foods. It tells us that he, his diet consisted of locusts and honey. So he's kind of a unique character, but even more than his dress and his diet, John had this explosive ministry. He, he denounced the, the religious leaders and the secular political rulers alike. And while John's not the main character in Luke's gospel, he, he comes onto the scene pretty quickly and departs just as fast. He plays a key role, a key role in setting the stage for Christ. Look with me in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother, Philip Tetrarch, of the region of Idorea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John comes onto the scene. And he comes onto the scene with prophetic style. Luke gives us this detailed historical information about Roman rulers, Tiberius, who was the, the second Caesar, the second emperor of Rome. He talks about these local rulers like Pontius Pilate and Herod of Galilee, who will later be key players in the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. And he tells us about religious leaders, Annas, the high priest, who even though he was technically deposed by Rome, everybody knew he still sort of called the shots. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was technically the high priest at the time. Both of those men would also feature prominently at the end of Luke's gospel with Christ's arrest and his crucifixion. But Luke is sort of giving us all of this historical detail, not just because he's a historian, not simply so that we know the chronology. I mean, it is that, but it's more than that. He's presenting John as a prophetic character. You go back to the Old Testament and you read the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Amos, many of the other prophets. And, and many of them start this way, that in the reign of such and such king of Israel or Judah, the word of the Lord came to such and such prophet. 
And that's the same formulation that we have here in Luke chapter 3. He's stylizing John the Baptist as standing in line, the continuation of an Old Testament prophetic ministry. Those writings often began the same way. And it's with this setting, he tells us that the word of the Lord came to the prophet, came to John in the wilderness. And he receives this prophetic word, and he even discharges his duty, as we'll see later, typically in the wilderness. John isn't a city boy. He is out in the desert, out in the wild places. As we'll see in the life of ministry of Jesus, I think there's a reason for this. The, the religious system of Israel was largely corrupt. It was empty. Two different times in Jesus' ministry, he would go into Jerusalem and cleanse the temple. He pronounced judgment on the temple. The religious leaders had become wicked shepherds who preyed on the sheep rather than feeding them. And so the word of God does not come to the high priest, to Annas or Caiaphas. It comes to the prophet. It does not come in the temple in Jerusalem. It comes in the wilderness. And all who would come to hear John would have to turn their backs on Jerusalem and the temple and the priesthood and everything that was going on there because it was so corrupt. So the word of God comes to the prophet of God out in the wilderness. And and the theme of Luke's gospel gives us a bit of a background even for this text. Luke's theme is that the good news of salvation in Jesus is for everyone. There's good news that Jesus saves. He comes to save. And this salvation is offered to all types of people. But in Luke's summary description of John's mission and John's message here in chapter 3, we discover this essential truth. And it's the focus of our sermon this morning. Those who would experience salvation in Christ, they must repent. Anyone who would experience the salvation that Jesus provides must repent. Repent. I want to walk through this text this morning and point out four reasons why this repentance is necessary. Four reasons that we draw from the ministry and the message of John. And, and the first is this. We see it in verses 3 through 6. That only the repentant experience forgiveness. Only those who repent will be forgiven. Look in verse 3 through 6. It says that he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. From John's ministry, we learn that only the repentant experience forgiveness. Zechariah had prophesied that his son John would preach such a message. If you remember back in chapter 1, this old man who was a faithful priest in Israel prophesies under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of of their sins. This salvation that John talked about, this salvation that the Messiah would bring to them, it required repentance. It required 
change. It required that the mountains be made low and the crooked ways be made straight in the lives of God's people. Repentance means a change in the inner man. It's a change of mind. It's a change of of heart. It's a turning, a turning away from sin and from self to God. And this repentance, this turning, has always been necessary. This was not a new thing. It's not a new message that John is preaching. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 27 says, Zion, speaking sort of holistically of, of Israel and her capital, Jerusalem, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Redemption and repentance go hand in hand. This is hundreds of years before John comes on the scene. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14.6, God tells him, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. This is always God's word through his prophet to God's people. It's a message of repentance, of turning, changing your mind. It's a change of heart and a change of direction. But repentance involves more than simply a decision of the mind. It's not less than that, but it includes more. Repentance is more than simply making a conscious choice to to turn and change your ways. Repentance, biblically speaking, is to be infused with a heart of sorrow over sin. It's to be marked by confession and godly grief. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul writes that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. True repentance will be marked by and attended by this godly grief. Sometimes people mistake what kind of sorrow is at work when someone's sin is exposed. Sometimes you're sad because you got caught. That's not godly grief. Sometimes we're sad because of the consequences of our sin. We don't like how it feels. That's not godly grief. That doesn't lead to repentance and salvation. That actually leads to death because the heart that is grieved by consequences or shame is a heart that cares about self. And the heart that cares about self is the heart that sinned in the first place, seeking to please the self. So we have to be careful about that. But nonetheless, there is a godly sorrow that comes with true repentance. We see examples of this with King David. As he writes Psalm 51, we see this beautiful poetic description of the, of the grief and the sorrow he had and the humility, his brokenness before God. We see it with the Ninevites as you read the book of Jonah. Jonah came and preached a message of God's judgment, a message of warning to the city. And they repented, they fasted, and they tore their clothes, and they put ashes and dust on their heads. We see this godly grief in repentance in the words of Job. Job received the word of God, the rebuke of God, not through a prophet, but directly as God spoke to him. And Job concluded, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. But to put dust and ashes on yourself was to signify publicly your sorrow and your grief. It's what you do when someone dies. And to do it because of your own sin was to communicate that sorrow and that repentance. So John comes preaching a message of repentance for forgiveness of sins, telling God's people, this is what you must do. Now, John's mission 
is specifically to prepare the way. We see that in verse 4 with a quotation from Isaiah that his mission is to prepare the way of the Lord. And the imagery here is, is really interesting. The, in old days when a, a king or a dignitary would be planning to come through, they would make preparations. Um, today, if the president of the United States were to come stay in a hotel in Lawrence, Kansas, you better believe that the Secret Service would come ahead of time to prepare the way. You'd see dogs sniffing up and down those hallways. You would see security cameras being tapped into. And you would see you know, specific vehicles with very tinted windows that were parked around the building. There would be preparation. Well, in those days, the preparation was to go ahead and to make sure that the road was clear and smooth to fix any, any, any road blockages, to straighten things out, to make sure that there was no threat of ambush, but also to make sure that it was the type of road that was fitting for a king to drive on. And that is descriptive of John's ministry. He's there to prepare the way for Christ. And the obstacles that needed to be dealt with, the hills and the valleys and the crooked paths, were the ones in the hearts of people. Mountains of pride and self-righteousness Valleys of darkness that held secret sins, crooked paths, a lack of integrity, dishonesty. Those are the things that John comes preaching against, saying you need to prepare because the Lord is coming. Repentance was their crucial need. So John's ministry is one of preparation. His message is one of repentance. But his method, specifically, is baptism. If you look in verse 3, he goes into the region around the Jordan It's this area north of the Dead Sea where the Jordan River runs north to south, so there's water there. And he's specifically proclaiming or preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's important that we understand John's baptism, his practice of baptism, is different than what we will see later in the New Testament. It's different than what Jesus would command his disciples to do. It's different than what we witness in the book of Acts. Uh, Baptism, this ritual, would come later to have a, a deeper and a fuller and even a more specific meaning following the death and resurrection of Jesus. When someone is baptized today, we're signifying union with Christ in his burial and resurrection. Well, that hadn't happened yet. Uh, This baptism is a little bit different. This is more primitive, you could say, and it has a a simpler meaning. These people were listening to John, and he's calling them to repentance. And so those who received his message, those who agreed with it and were responding obediently, they would come to him to be immersed in the water. That's what baptize means. The word baptizo means to plunge under the surface. So he would baptize them. And, And this was a symbolic act that testified to the condition of their heart, that they were saying yes to his message and repenting of their sin. Now, it's interesting. There were many uh, ritual washings in Judaism. They had different washings for, for different rituals that they performed. But there was no baptism in Judaism for followers of Yahweh. But there was a baptism for Gentiles who wanted to become proselytes, those who were not descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but who recognize that Yahweh is the one true God, they could join themselves to the covenant people, but there was this process of baptism that they had to go through. Here's why that's significant. This isn't just interesting historical tidbit. Think about that. For a Jewish person to walk away from Jerusalem, away from the temple into the wilderness, 
and to basically go through this ritual that confessed, I am no better than a Gentile. I am separated from God. I am cut off from him because of my sin. And I have to humble myself and confess my absolute need for him. That's what baptism would have signified. That they put no stock in their birth. That their heritage and their, you know, all the promises that were given to their forefathers, that that would do them no good as long as they were so immersed in sin. So these people are repenting. Acknowledging all of this, that they need a radical cleansing from God. This would have been a deep expression of humility and a shocking expression of a need for mercy, which is why it made the perfect picture for repentance. If you're serious about repenting, then you need to show it, John is preaching, by basically taking the same steps a Gentile would have to take to draw near to God. So they're publicly confessing this through baptism and showing that they need salvation and that they need what the Messiah comes to bring. Now, I want to make two doctrinal clarifications. Two big questions can arise from this text, and so I want to answer them. Number one, does baptism save? When it says a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, does that mean that the baptism accomplishes forgiveness? And the answer is no. The waters of baptism, in John's baptism here, they're symbolic, not effectual. Remember, the point is that only those who are repentant experience forgiveness. And it's the repentance that leads to forgiveness, not the baptism. The baptism simply expresses that repentance. Forgiveness has always been tied to confession and repentance. We see this in the Old Testament. Psalm 32.5, David writes, I acknowledged my sin to you, And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There was no baptism in view. There was no water involved. David humbles himself, confesses his sin, and God forgives him. 1 John 1.9 tells us today, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the waters of baptism are not efficacious. They do not actually wash us and forgive us. Baptism in John's day and baptism today are both meant to be symbolic. Symbolic. We could say more about that going on throughout the New Testament. The Philippian jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas don't tell him to be baptized. They tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 10, we're told if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It's not dependent on baptism. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. It's not a result of some ritual that we do so that no one can boast. So baptism does not save. Baptism does not purchase for us forgiveness or secure forgiveness. But there's a second doctrinal clarification I want to to make here. I think most of you probably agree right off the bat. Of course, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But you might also have this question. Is repentance a work that merits salvation? Does this mean that repentance is some sort of additional hurdle we have to clear in order to be saved? Because I thought we just had to believe in the gospel. Now you're saying we also have to repent? Well, let me clarify. Repentance is not meant to be in addition to faith. 
Repentance is an expression of faith. They're two sides of the same coin. You could say it this way, saving faith is a repentant faith. And true repentance, genuine repentance, believes in the promise of God. Those two things go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. And that's why scripture so often pairs these two terms together, repentance and faith. Jesus preached in Mark chapter one, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We turn from sin and in turning from sin, we're turning to Christ. The turning from sin is repentance. The turning to Christ is faith. So we're not trying to add a work of repentance to say you have to do this good work in order to be saved. It's simply part of what happens when someone really believes in Jesus is it's seen in their repentance. Paul summarized his gospel ministry in Acts chapter 20 that he was testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. These two ideas of faith and repentance are they're two sides of the same coin and they go hand in hand. It is through repentance from sin and faith in Christ that we lay hold of God's saving grace. And it is grace that saves us. Your faith does not save you. Jesus saves you, and so you place your faith in him. Your repentance does not save you. Jesus saves you, so you turn from your sin and you turn towards Jesus because only he can save. So this repentance is the way by which we lay hold of God's grace, but it's also the way that God lays hold of us. Repentance, like faith, is actually God's work of grace in us. It's a gift. It's evident that the Holy Spirit is active. John 16, 8 says that the Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. For someone to repent of sin means first there has to be a deep uh, feeling of conviction. Where does that come from? Who's the one who produces that conviction? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 2 verse 4 says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. When someone repents of sin, who led them there? God did. God did. 2 Timothy 2.25 Um, Paul encourages Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness. There's a reason. He said, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. The Apostle Paul describes this repentance not as a work that we do that earns salvation, but rather as a work of God in the heart of a sinner that graciously leads us to salvation. So baptism does not save us. And repentance is not a work that earns salvation. Baptism does not cleanse, God does that. And it's the work of Christ that saves us, not our own works. So sometimes people can get confused on that when they read this passage, but I hope to make that clear that the simple point is this. Those who would experience salvation in Jesus must repent, and it is only the repentant that will experience forgiveness. John ties those two truths together as he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It is in this way that the people prepare the way for the Lord so that they will, according to verse six, see the salvation of God. If there is no repentance, it means there is no faith and there is no salvation. So so those who would experience salvation must repent. Only the repentant experience forgiveness. There's a um, a, a second reason why this repentance is necessary. 
Only the repentant will escape the wrath of God. Only those who repent will escape wrath. Look in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Look down to verse 16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Repentance is not optional. And John does not present it as optional. He says, if you do not repent, if there is no evidence of repentance in you, then your destiny is judgment. John presents this message as a matter of life and death. He's preaching here to warn us that if if we refuse to respond to the word of God, the word that he is preaching, if we fail to repent of our sins, then we will not be forgiven, and instead we will suffer the righteous wrath of God. He mentions in verse 7, the wrath to come. He's speaking of the day of the Lord and this this great entrance into eternal judgment. He he mentions verse 9, this symbolism of the axe that's already laid at the root of the trees so that those trees that don't bear fruit can be cut down and thrown into the fire. He talks about a baptism of fire in verse 16. Yes, Jesus is the Savior who brings forgiveness and the Holy Spirit but he is also the final judge of all the earth. He mentions the burning of chaff with unquenchable fire in verse 17. There's imagery here of separation. They would have gathered up all their grain into a big pile. They took a big pitchfork type tool and they would have thrown it up into the air after stepping on it and kind of smashing it around. And as as they stepped on it and ground it, it would have separated the thin paper-like layer, the, the outer chaff, from the inner kernel of wheat. And when they threw it up in the air... The chaff would blow away in the wind, and the heavier wheat grain would fall to the ground. This is imagery where Jesus is basic. John is saying that what Jesus is going to do is sort everybody out. He's going to separate those who repent from those who don't. And the ones who don't are likened to this paper-thin, lightweight material that would have burned very, very quickly and easily. Once again, John is not preaching something new when he talks about wrath, when he talks about judgment. Psalm 7 verse 12 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. That's a threat. And it's not an empty one. Jonah verse 310 speaks of this conditional judgment that hinges upon whether or not people repent. Jonah preached to Nineveh and it says, When God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Judgment was going to fall on Nineveh, but when they repented, God withheld his wrath. Now, when we talk about this topic of wrath and fire and judgment and hell, some people, you know, they might look at this and accuse John. 
They might accuse John of using scare tactics. They might accuse John of just being a hellfire and brimstone preacher. He's rightly called John the Baptist. He should be in some backwoods, you know, little Baptist church where there's some guy ranting and raving about hell. But I want to ask you, where did John get this message? Why is he talking about fire and judgment and wrath? Where did he get his message? Look back at verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Word here is not logos. It's not the, the comprehensive embodied truth of God's revelation. The word here is rhema. It means he had a message. He had specific words that he was supposed to preach. John got his message from God. And when Jesus comes and starts preaching shortly after this, Jesus actually preaches more on hell than anyone else. Jesus describes hell in Mark 9, 48 as a place where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. In Matthew 8, verse 12, Jesus describes hell as a place of outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 13, 41, Jesus describes hell as a fiery furnace. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, Paul writes that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the, eternal, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Listen, we talk about a hellfire and brimstone preacher usually with negative connotations. We don't always like that. And yes, it is possible It is possible to focus on wrath and fail to preach grace, to only preach half the gospel. That is a danger. But what's the failure of too many Christians, too many churches, too many preachers today? I don't think our biggest problem is that we focus on hell and judgment too much. The problem is neglecting this truth. The problem is avoiding this truth. Some will say, but this doesn't sound loving. My God would never throw someone into hell for eternity. Well, you need to tell that to God. Because this is what he says he will do. This is his prophet John who's speaking his word. These are truths we receive directly from the preaching of Christ himself. So when we talk about the wrath to come, when we talk about eternal judgment, when we talk about the reality of conscious torment in hell for eternity. We are not resorting to scare tactics. That is simply honest preaching. It's honest preaching. Listen, God's standard is perfect holiness, perfect sinlessness. And none of us is clean. None of us is without fault. None of us meets that standard. None of us can stand in God's courtroom and claim to be righteous, claim to be good. Which means, listen, if you do not repent, if you refuse to bow the knee to Christ, then you will spend eternity in hell. If you refuse, you will bear your sin forever. And with it, you will bear the judgment that that sin rightly deserves. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But then it says the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Listen, true repentance flees from the wrath to come by running to Christ because Jesus can save us from that wrath. Jesus can bear the punishment for our sin. Jesus can rescue us from hell. So turn to him. Repent of your sin. It is the only way to escape the wrath to come. Those who would experience salvation in Christ must repent. It's the only way to escape wrath. There's a third result of repentance. Not only do only the the repentant experience forgiveness, and only the repentant escape wrath, but third, only the repentant exhibit change. I'm going to jump back into verse 7 again. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Only the repentant exhibit change, and they will exhibit change. Luke notes that these crowds were coming out to him to be baptized, but you might notice that John doesn't really welcome them very kindly. In verse 7, he calls them a brood of vipers, calls them a pack of snakes. You might say, well, why is that? Well, Matthew tells us that some people in the crowd were there simply because it was the thing to do. They were there simply to jump through hoops But John knew that their heart was not in it. There were some from the Pharisees and and the religious leaders that were doing this hypocritically. Matthew 3, 5 says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What John is doing is saying, I know what you are. He's exposing their character. And he knew that they were not seeking change. They're not coming because internally they've been broken of sin. They're just like a bunch of critters running from a brush fire. They're there because everybody's there. They're just kind of swept up in it. But John knew that no ritual of baptism could change their heart. They needed to be broken on the inside. Repentance is more than jumping through some hoops and getting baptized. It must involve real change, a change that will be easily seen because this repentance, if you give it time, it produces fruit. The sad reality is there will be a lot of baptized people in hell because there was never repentance. There was never genuine faith. There will be people in hell who went through the ritual but never repented. There was never change. This repentance that produces change, John says, is necessary for everyone. He says, don't tell me we have Abraham as our father. He said, don't tell me that just because you're from the nation Israel, just because you can trace your ancestry back to the patriarchs, that somehow this repentance doesn't apply to you. This repentance is necessary for everyone. They could put no confidence in their ancestry. 
No confidence in their public reputation. No confidence in their religious, r- religious rituals. John says, listen, God doesn't need you. And God doesn't owe you anything. Repentance is a universal need. Regardless of who you are, regardless of how old you are, regardless of where you're from, regardless of what church you're a member of and how long you've been a member and how much money you've given to the church and how much ministry you've been involved in. Repentance is for everyone. Many people took this message to heart and they asked him in verse 10 for specific instruction. Okay, We get it. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be fruit. What does that look like? What do we do? Verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And John, like a good preacher, gives them some practical application. Practical application for all sorts of people. He says, if you have two tunics or some extra food, then you should love your neighbor. He's not prescribing a legalistic requirement. He's saying, listen, if you are really changing, if you're really repentant, you'll start fulfilling God's law, which can be summed up as loving your neighbor. It's basic truth. The tax collectors came to him. They said, what do we do? He says, well, don't gather more than you're supposed to. Whatever your vocation is, it needs to be done with integrity and honesty, not exploiting other people and taking advantage of them, but honoring God in your business dealings. The soldiers come and ask, what about us? He says, be content with your wages and don't abuse your authority. No matter what station of life people are in, if there's genuine repentance, it's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the way you talk to your husband. Kids, it's going to change your attitude towards your parents. It's going to change the way you handle conflict at work. It's going to change the way you treat people in the church who are different than you, that rub you the wrong way. Repentance changes every level of life, every part of life. Many of us can testify to the change that God's gracious work leads us to as we repent and we submit ourselves to God. Many of you guys don't do the things you used to do. Praise God. Many of us are not who we were. There's been real change. The church is not full of people that are perfect, but it is full of people who are being perfected. We're being changed by God's grace. We're not sinless, but as God's grace works in us, we start to sin less. We start to change, and our behavior should be evident to all who see us. Your life should be observably Christian. Not that you jump through hoops, but that your character is changing. That there's humility and love and integrity because you are a broken and repentant person who has humbled yourself before the Lord. No matter what your station in life, real repentance will produce change. It will bear fruit. And this fruit proves the genuineness of your salvation. Those who do not repent don't bear fruit of repentance. And those who don't bear fruit of repentance are cast into the fire because it proves that they were never born again. They were never saved. There's a fourth point I want to bring out this morning. Only the repentant experience forgiveness. Only the repentant escape wrath. Only the repentant really change, but fourth, only the repentant receive the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Luke says, there was an air of expectation. People were wondering, is John the Messiah? Because there's big stuff happening right now. I mean, this is causing a scene in Israel, and everybody's hearing about it. But John says, no, I'm not him. But let me tell you about him. If you think that this is big, wait till you see what he will do when he shows up. He says that the Messiah, the true Messiah, the Christ, is more mighty than him. He says he is mightier than I in verse 16. You see, John was born in a miraculous way. He was born of an impossibly old woman, somebody who was way past the childbearing years. But Jesus was born of a virgin. There was no husband involved. It was an even greater miracle. There's a greater power at work in Jesus than there is in John. Because while John is a great man, somebody that Jesus would say is greater than anyone else born among women, Jesus is God in the flesh. And he is far superior to John. John will point out the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And while John baptizes them with water, he says that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We've already talked about fire being judgment that Jesus will bring. But what about the Holy Spirit? What does it mean when John says that he will baptize you with the Spirit? Well, this baptism of the Spirit, this pouring out of the Spirit will be the fulfillment of the promises of the new covenant. This is how God will save his people. Ezekiel 36, 27, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This outpouring of the spirit is central to the salvation that Jesus comes to provide. John is saying, I can't save you. I can't fulfill God's promises, but the one who is coming is greater than me. He can save you. And he will fulfill God's promises. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, apart from the Holy Spirit, we remain spiritually dead. You can't resurrect yourself. You can't heal yourself. You can't purify yourself. But the Holy Spirit does all of those things. He awakens us. He gives us sight. He enables us to believe. He produces repentance in us. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to change. All of that comes through the Spirit. And John says, as you repent and you prepare the way and you receive the Messiah, he will give you the Spirit. Titus 2.5 talks about the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation. It says that God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God saves us by pouring out the Spirit through Jesus Christ. It's this Trinitarian salvation where every member of the triune God is involved in redeeming us. It's a beautiful thing. The Father planned out our salvation in eternity past. The Son accomplishes our salvation by shedding his blood on the cross. But the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that salvation to our hearts. The Spirit is the one who produces life and makes the miracle happen. He makes us alive. He makes us clean. Not only is our initial experience of salvation dependent on the Holy Spirit, but it's this presence of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit that brings a new power into our lives. Some of you remember what it was like before you were a Christian. You remember what it's like to be a slave to sin. 
to be completely unable to change. All that changes when the Holy Spirit breaks in. It brings a new power, a new ability to say no to temptation and no to sinful desire, a new ability to say yes to the righteous will of God. The presence of the Holy Spirit not only gives us this power, but think about it, it's this dynamic presence of God where we're no longer far off from him, but he dwells in us, dwells with us. It's restored fellowship with God. And this presence of the Holy Spirit is a down payment on our future inheritance. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, Paul says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Those who repent will receive the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. And everything that the Spirit brings, life, cleansing, power, assurance, closeness to God, and a confidence, a down payment in our future inheritance. But it's only for those who repent. Only the repentant will receive the Spirit. John is talking here about how much greater Jesus is than he. He's more mighty. He has a superior power, a different baptism. Because of all this, John says that he's unworthy to even untie his shoes. He says, I'm definitely not him. There is no comparison. It's interesting. There's this ancient rabbinical writing that says, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal thong. To be a disciple of a teacher, to be bound to a rabbi in that day, meant that you were taking the posture of a servant. You would do everything for your teacher. But there was one duty that was even below a disciple, and that's to untie his shoes, to help him with his footwear. And so John picks up on that one little facet, and he says, I'm not even worthy to do that job. That's how much greater the Messiah is than me. Jesus would say that there is no one greater than John, and that's true. But he still doesn't compare to Jesus. And so John knows this. He gladly tells his own followers. As it says in the Gospel of John, he must increase, I must decrease. And he must increase because he's the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And John is teaching these people they must repent if they would experience that salvation. This is just a little snapshot of John's ministry. It says in verse 18, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news. To the people. Good news. Good news that forgiveness can be had. Good news that wrath can be averted. Good news that real change can happen in your life. Good news that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out through the Messiah. But whoever would experience this salvation, whoever would receive this good news, John says, you must repent. You must repent. I have two simple points of application for you this morning. The first is this. Number one, this is a message that we must obey. This message of repentance is one that every person in this room has an obligation to respond to. And just like John told them, don't tell me that you're descended from Abraham. It doesn't mean anything. You still have to repent. I would echo that and say, don't tell me that you're a member of the church. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized, how much good work you've done for the church and in the world. 
Doesn't matter who your parents are. Doesn't matter what family you're from. No one is above the need for repentance. No one. Listen, if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never humbled yourself before Christ, if there is no evidence of change and no desire for change and no willingness to change in your heart, if you are holding on to sin, if you're refusing to give up your sin, then you need to examine yourself this morning because this is what Matthew chapter 7 says. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you are living a life of unrepentant sin, unwilling to change, if you are what Jesus would call a worker of lawlessness, then you are proving that you do not know Christ and he does not know you. And that is a deadly and dangerous situation to be in this morning. If this does not change, you will face eternal damnation in hell. That's the truth. You will suffer the righteous wrath of God in an infinite, unending agony in the fire of his judgment if you do not repent. But today, by God's grace, if you are here and you are a worker of lawlessness who's living in unrepentant sin, you're hearing today good news. You're hearing a call to repentance that if you repent, forgiveness is yours. If you repent, you can escape the wrath to come. If you repent, God will produce change in you and he will give you his Holy Spirit. Today, you need to turn. You need to mourn. You need to be broken before God and cry out for his mercy. Believe that Jesus saves, that there's forgiveness in the cross of Christ, that there is cleansing in his blood, that there is freedom in the gospel from the power and the penalty of sin. Come to him today, be forgiven, be saved. Only Christ can give you what you need. Only Christ can provide the salvation, but you must repent. Listen, there is no salvation apart from repentance. But I want to talk to the Christians in the room too because this message is not just for those that are lost. It's not just for those who need to be saved. Repentance is an essential ingredient, not just for our conversion, but it's also a necessary part of our sanctification. It's a part of growing in Christ, growing in holiness. We never outgrow our need for repentance. Repentance for the Christian, for the believer, is to be a continual posture towards God. If John were here, what would he call you to do? What would John call you on? You're not a tax collector. You're not a, a soldier in the Roman army or, or one of the police force in Jerusalem. But what would Jesus have you to do to change? What sin is being committed? What duty is being neglected? What opportunities are being missed? What would repentance look like, Christian, in your life today? And as you're hearing this call, will you respond in repentance? Will you humble yourself and turn, confess your sin and forsake it? If not, I want to ask you why. Like, what, are, what are you holding back? 
why will you not respond to the authoritative call to repentance from God's word? Psalm 51, 16 says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I know I've been preaching hard towards the hearts that are hard. But what about the hearts that are broken this morning? Maybe you're feeling conviction, deep conviction. Maybe there's a specific sin that God is bringing to mind. The sin of thought, the sin of your speech, the sin of desire, the sin of deed, something you're doing. Maybe it's the sin of, of omission. There's something you're not doing that you know God wants you to do. And you feel broken about that today. Let me give you this good news. To echo the words of the psalmist, the broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Those that are broken and feel conviction and grief, God is tender, God is comforting, God is merciful and compassionate. He does not stand back and say, it's about time, you idiot. I've been waiting for you to get your head spun around the right direction. No, he receives us with tenderness, with compassion, with grace, with mercy. You come to him with a broken heart and you offer that grief and that confession and that remorse to him. He will restore you. He will forgive you. He will comfort you. He will cleanse you. And you need not fear his wrath. You need not fear his displeasure. Paul gives us this triumphant declaration in his letter to the Romans that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 130 says, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So if you feel the weight and the burden of your sin today, be encouraged to come. He will not despise you. He will not cast you out. He will not turn you away. So number one, this is a message we need to obey. So do not go from here today without considering how God may be calling you to repent. But secondly, this is a message that not only we need to obey, it is a message we must proclaim. And it's a message we must proclaim that sinners must repent. And we have to proclaim it even if it's costly. Look at verse 19. It says, well, let's start in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Herod, okay, this is like a soap opera story that's probably fit for HBO and not for Sunday morning church. But Herod had married his brother's wife. He had divorced his own wife, talked her into leaving her husband, and she was actually his niece. So it was incestuous. It was divorce and remarriage that God forbids, and it was also against the Mosaic law, which says not to marry your brother's wife. So there was like three strikes on this deal, and John pointed it out. John called him on it, and it cost him. He ended up in prison, and eventually he lost his head because of it. There is a temptation to water down the message of the gospel, because if you tell people they must repent, that they must repent of their idolatry, that they must change their lifestyle, 
that they must repent of their, their, their whole worldview, the way they think everything works, and they have to humble themselves and completely be broken before Christ and submit to his lordship, that's not going to make friends and influence people and, and, and win you lots of admirers. It's going to cost you. But listen, church, we cannot water down the gospel simply because of the cost to us. We cannot give in to the temptation to preach this sort of easy believism type of a gospel. All you have to do is, you know, say, Jesus, I want you to be my savior, and then your life's going to get better. That's not the gospel. The true gospel calls for repentance. The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, the gospel calls for repentance. We need to be careful not to water down the message. We need to call sinners to repentance. We need to teach this to our children. We need to tell it to our neighbors. We need to insist on the necessity of repentance in a culture that celebrates sin. We need to say, no, that's wrong. It leads to death. The wrath of God is coming on those who walk down that path. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. And we have to tell people that they're on it. There may be a cost. It may be deemed as hate speech. It may feel personally offensive to tell someone they need to repent. It may be considered politically incorrect. So be it. So be it. It's not our message to massage into something that we think will be more palatable for people. Rather than tamper with it, we need to turn it loose. It's God's gospel. It's his message. It's his word, not ours. So rather than conceal the the thorny and the difficult truths, it's our calling to proclaim it. Because those who would experience salvation in Jesus must repent. So we have to tell them. And if we don't tell them, who's going to? So church, this is a message that, number one, we have to believe and respond to. But number two, it's also a message that we have to proclaim. You know, by God's grace, there are many here today who have repented of sin, who have turned to Christ, and who continue to seek to repent. I praise God for that. That's evidence of his spirit at work and his grace changing us. May we be a church that never ceases to obey that call. We never outgrow our need for repentance. And may we also be a church that is faithful to proclaim this good news and to call others to repent so that they might experience the salvation that is found in Christ. Will you pray with me? God, I pray for those who are brokenhearted, who feel conviction this morning. Lord, I'm convinced of the wisdom of those who have said that soft preaching produces hard hearts, but hard preaching can make soft hearts. Lord, I thank you for the soft hearts in the room, and I pray that you would bind up their wounds, that you would sew them up where we've cut them open today, that you would speak to them through your spirit with tenderness, that you would assure them of their pardon and their forgiveness as they confess their sin to you. Pray that you'd give them confidence in the promise of the gospel, the promise that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. I pray that they would truly believe that there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I pray that you would minister to them in your grace. Lord, for hearts that remain hard, for those who ignore the truth of your word, those who are suppressing the voice of your Holy Spirit, those who are right now at this moment looking for 16 different excuses and reasons why this doesn't apply to them. 
Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm them with your truth, that you would break them of their sin and their hard-heartedness, that you would rescue them from their pride and their unbelief and bring them to yourself. Lord, we confess that we are sinful people. We have nothing to offer you. We simply need your mercy. We're so thankful that you are a merciful, compassionate God who does not despise the broken and the contrite heart. It pleases you. You delight in it. It is a sacrifice that that is a sweet-smelling aroma to you. Lord, may we be a church that is marked by true repentance and the fruit that it brings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.